Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Tonight on Fast Money, a semi-smackdown. The chip stock's getting crushed, but does that mean opportunity for you? We're going to break down how our traders are playing the big pullback. Netflix raising its game, literally. What the company just did that got a lot of investors interested. Later on, a bit of a birthday buzzkill. Twitter, happy birthday. You're 15 years old today. But it was hardly a party for investors. The headline that took more than $1.5 billion off Twitter's market cap coming up. Well, welcome, everybody. It is another big show tonight or this afternoon if you're on the West Coast. I'm Brian, and once again for Melissa. And your trader lineup on this Thursday, Tim Seymour, Nadine Turman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We're going to start with something a little different today, guys. Not the macro market, something a little more near and dear perhaps to my own heart. And that is oil, because we had a big warning for big oil. Listen to what Kramer had to say about crude oil earlier today on Squawk on the Street. We're going to see maybe a million barrels back in the Permian, and the economy is not going to be able to handle it. It, The economy doesn't have that much demand. So there'll be a tipping point supply. I'm calling the top right here in oil. Big call by Jim. Now, oil settling down more than 2% today after hitting seven-year highs just last week. Don't want to make too much. We're still above where we were basically a month ago. But when oil goes down, you know what else falls? Energy stocks. The sector certainly has been the worst performer in the S&P today, down about 7% this month after being red hot to begin the year. Dan, you kind of hit on this last night. You, you talked about oil. You also, it sounds like, would agree with Jim. You think there is a near or short or medium-term peak for the price of oil. Well, it sounds like, Brian, that Jim agrees with me because I said it last night. We call that scooping him in the business. I would say, no, Jim, Jim's a genius. And, and listen, he's looking at a lot more inputs than I'm looking at. And, and the, the things that I'm thinking about very simply are that China GDP print, while it was still pretty good at 7.9%, it came in below expectations. We also know that they took some stimulus measures late last week. We know that uh, Mike Santoli just said it on the closing bell. Um, the GDP now, the Atlanta Fed forecast for Q2 GDP um, has come down a bit. Uh, Ours is expected to be 7.9. It was 10% um, just a month ago. So when you think about the pace of the recovery, you know, crude oil is one of the last industrial commodities that really hasn't come in yet. And to your point, also, the oil stocks are leading the way. The OIH is down 21% from its recent highs. And the XLE, which is made up largely of those large integrated, is down about 11% from those recent highs. So I think it's interesting that the stocks have rolled over before the commodity. The commodity is down about 7% in the last couple of weeks. Not a disaster by any means, but if some of the data start com- starts coming in a little weaker, crude is going to be on, I think, on a very similar course to some of the other commodities that we've seen that come in of late, like copper and maybe even like lumber. Uh, well, if it's lumber, Dan, I mean, that's a whole different ballgame because I've never seen a commodity move like that. Guy Adami, How much of this do you think has to do with interest rates? I don't like talking about bonds. They're boring. They're super tankers. They move slowly. But 
Mike Santoli also talked about it. As rates go down, the big cyclicals tend to get hit. I wonder how much of this is less fundamental, more rate-driven, if any. Part of the story, no question about it. I also think part of the story is the fact that the dollar's gotten off the mat. The dollar has rallied. Obviously, there's this seemingly concern out there that this variant strain is going to cause a slowdown in Europe, possibly over here. Just as we speak, you know, a few minutes before the show, the Yankee game tonight against the Red Sox got postponed on the back of COVID fear. So there's obviously those concerns. So the slowdown aspect is out there. But Dan made a great point. The equities have led, you know, names that I have liked, for example, PSX, which made a rocket ship, I thought, to 100, stopped at 94. Look at how quickly that stock has given basically almost the entire move back, trading 77 now. So although crude, the commodity is just starting seemingly to turn, some of these equities have led. Begs the question, you know, of the equities bottom before the commodity. I think that might be the case. I know we have a great 13-year chart we're going to look at that Dan pointed out uh, that shows that we basically bumped up against a huge downtrend line going back to 2008. So it leads you to believe that maybe the commodity starts to roll over. I just wonder, though, if the, equi- if the worst is over for the equities. Yeah. Well, Tim, let, let's kind of let's stick on this, but I want to go to some sound today from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, because there is a great fear around the world around the, the Delta variant. Thank goodness in the U.S. with the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna look extremely effective in preventing symptomatic or serious cases. That's the CDC. Again, not my opinion. Europe, they have more AstraZeneca, less effective. I only bring that up not because we want to talk about science and vaccines, but because it goes to the demand for oil story, it goes to the economy story. Here's what Janet Yellen had to say about one of her concerns around the Delta variant on CNBC earlier today. I do think it's a risk. I think it's not just a question of the United States. It's a question of risks around the world. Um, I am very concerned that although advanced countries are making good progress with vaccination in many parts of the world, and especially in low-income countries, vaccination rates are extremely low. Um, As long as that's true and this uh, virus is easily transmittable um, across borders, we really have to worry about the development of um, variants that could pose um, future threats. So, Tim, your take. Well, we're talking about demand factors. And and again, Guy, maybe it's just people don't want to drive to the Bronx. So some of that gas demand uh, is part of this. But look, um, Jim was talking about supply dynamics. And and I think supply is so much more important when we're thinking about oil and how we've thought about oil for the last 10 years. And if you think about uh, he's talking about U.S. production, you know, OPEC was out there even saying they think non-OPEC production is going to you know be roughly 2.1 million barrels next year of additional oil on the market. They're also saying, though, that they think there's going to be an additional 3.3 million barrels of demand. And, and but again, the U.S. will be probably, I think, you know, 700 million, 700,000 barrels a day of that demand. Look, I, I think the other uh, supply side dynamics here are, are looking at where oil stocks are for the developed nations. Again, the places where you're going to have the highest oil demand. And, and I think we're, we're back uh, below 2015 you know, averages on, on where those stocks are. So um, I, I think this is a, qua- a case yeah. of where the market's just positioned so different coming out of this. I care a lot less about demand. Um, and, and I'll also just say that I, I think if you look at where, you know, overall oil companies 
uh, as investments and in gas companies and exploration companies are as investments for investors. These are companies that have changed their approach to their balance sheets, to when they raised a lot of debt during the last couple months, a uh, couple years, and, and they're doing it to spruce up their balance sheets, not to drill yeah. at all costs. And I think that's what's very different and very underappreciated by folks that are looking at the energy trade. I think these companies are, are much more investable than they've ever been. Yeah, they, honestly, Tim, you're exactly right. I mean, they were, and I hate to use this term, I mean, they were stupid for years. And they spent all their money drilling holes in the ground, literally threw money into the ground. And now, by the way, many of them are hedged at 55 bucks. They don't have the profit, I don't think, to drill. We'll, we'll see, right. though. Uh, Nadine, I'm going to come to you, but I'm going to first ask my team, kind of call an audible, guys, if you could throw like a five- or ten-year chart of the OIH versus the price of oil. Nadine, that's the one of the ETFs versus oil. And I, and I bring this up because this is kind of Tom Lee's thing, and he highlights it almost nightly in his, in his must-read research, which is one of these is mispriced. When oil's at 70 bucks, the OIH has tended to be, look, you guys are great, good work. The OIH has tended to be at like 500. So the OIH is about half that. So either the price of oil has got to come down or the oil stocks are wildly underpriced. Do you have a view on, look at that spread. Do you have a view on what that may be? I think I'm closer to where Guy was, which is the stocks had led the downturn here. Um, but And I think that Tim and Dan make good points about supply and demand. But I view the current uh, softness as more of a consolidation. All of these stocks were hitting the top end of our trading range. And this often happens. And it doesn't mean that they can't take a leg up higher. Like I'm looking at the OVX, and that's the volatility of oil. It's sitting at 38. It didn't move that much today. You'd have to see it into the 40s to get really nervous. So I'm not so nervous about it. I think of it as that I'm looking at the XLE. It's the low end of our trading range, which I'm looking at 50.22. It's sitting with 8.5% short interest, and I think a 6 to 1 upside. So I think you can actually continue to play this. I think the demand um, is important supply, too, but it will continue to be strong as we see reopening. So I'm not giving up on it quite yet. And, and everybody's driving and traffic. I talked to somebody today who lives on the Upper West Side. So it took an hour to go from the Upper West Side, basically to Fort Lee, New Jersey. For more on somebody that knows about New York traffic, oh, by the way, also knows about oil and oil stocks. Let's bring in Paul Sankey. He is lead oil analyst at his own firm, Sankey Research. By the way, one of the few analysts alongside Halima Croft and a couple of others who has actually made the trek to an OPEC meeting in Austria. So he knows from which he speaks. He joins us now by phone. Paul, you've been listening to this. It does appear that based on demand estimates, supply constraints, everybody's got a car, something seems wildly mispriced or am I just wildly off base? Yeah, hi, Brian. Hi, everyone. Yeah, just, just worth mentioning that I met some guy called Brian Sullivan while I was hanging around the Vienna OPEC meeting, and, and that was a great pleasure to meet you. Um, no, there's a lot of things that are mispriced. I mean, the big headline one would be either the dollar's uh, too strong or the oil price is too weak. So that's, that's an overriding one. Secondly, you know, either rates are going lower or higher, but in either case, uh, one would be a deflationary argument, which would be somewhat negative for oil, obviously. But if you think that, that rates must go higher, that the dollar must get weaker, then essentially you're going to be bullish oil. And then there's a second element here, obviously, that you guys have been referencing, which is the oil stocks are totally disconnected from the commodity. Now, one of the problems, as you know, is that if it's got OPEC in it, generalists don't want to know. You know, if you're dependent on a debate between MBZ, MBZ, 
the the the, de facto, the, the, the uh, absolute ruler of the UAE and the crown prince of, of Saudi, journalists and American investors obviously just throw their hands in the air because it's impossible, you know, to, to value that, and that gives the stocks a lower multiple because it's it's volatile and uncertain. And therefore, over time, what we've seen as much owing to OPEC as anything else, uh, we've had multiple degradation. Now, I don't, I don't like your comparison so much to the OIH because, as Tim was saying, capital discipline is going to be negative for the oil service stocks, and that's the OIH uh, ETF. But I do think that the improved strategy that yeah. Tim referenced, which is very clear, gets me to a 10% plus cash yield to shareholders from names like EOG, Devon, Pioneer, the best quality names are getting to double-digit returns, and I think anyone should buy that based on uh, the fact that over 10 years you'll be completely paid out. Yeah, I know I know. Jim Cramer has talked, as much as he was peeking on oil, he talked positively about Devon the other day. Uh, and Pioneer, by the way, run by the only CEO you and I have seen at an OPEC meeting, Scott Sheffield. He's the only oil CEO that I've seen over there, widely considered one of the best of the business. Let me ask you this. I'm sure Tim wants to jump in. But a quick uh, question, Paul. If you had, and I know I'm going to ask it in a, in a simple TV way, so forgive me. What is more important for the oil stock trade, the dollar and rates or supply-demand fundamentals? Oh, I think it's equal. You know, I think the, the mistake is that everybody talks OPEC, everybody talks supply-demand fundamentals. And I'm sitting there going, look, the dollar at 93 on the DXY implies oil at 60. That implies that the fundamentals are actually very strong and the market's really concerned about the demand resurgence. And by the way, people are not driving. I'm phoning you from Mexico here, too. Uh, Brian, sorry. And um, demand here is still weak. It's, they're still in a COVID situation. And, and as for international air travel, there's 2 million barrels a day of demand still to come back there. So, you know, the demand side is obviously increasing rapidly in terms of its strengthening, but it's still way below where we could end up. And that will make it pretty easy for OPEC to manage the market. Hey, Paul, it's Tim. So in terms of the marginal barrel of oil that could come on the market, let's look back to the, you know, let's go it's back to the future in terms of looking at the U.S. market, which which really was was part of the, the, the change in the supply demand and, and really drove a bigger wedge in OPEC that I think they've recovered from. Where do you see the U.S. market uh, being a marginal barrel of oil back on the market at higher prices? And again, as best you can in a short amount of time, describe where these guys are hedged, where they are profitable, and where you know higher oil prices don't necessarily mean we're going to see a flood of new oil. Well, like, you know, EOG said they would make a 30% up, uh, wellhead return at $40 oil and a 15% return at $40 oil, and they actually made a minus 2% last year in, in 2020 when oil averaged 40. So the answer, I think, is you know, over 50 is the break-even for these companies. Break-even is not good enough. You need a, and I think it's probably close to 55. And on top of that, we now, as noted, require a 10% return. So essentially 60 is now definitely, to me, the mid-cycle. 40 is obviously the low. And upwards of 80, as we all know, is, is a bit problematic for the global economy and for the world. All right, so you know you like EOG, Devon, Pioneer. Basically, EOG and Pioneer, the names that you always hear is sort of having the best management but you're right, uh, Paul. They need the big companies, the Chevrons, the Exxons, to invest in drilling. Otherwise, the smaller players aren't going to benefit. Before we let you go, I know you're neutral to negative on the space. Are there any refiners you do like here? You, you mentioned a few producers. Any refiners you like? 
Uh, only if OPEC decides to increase a lot. You know, for the upstream guys, we think they're going into a great earnings season and there's going to be upgrades based on Q3 being above consensus. So we like the uh, upstream names. And it's problematic for refiners. They're going to have a tough Q3, Q2 earnings. Like a Chevron, for example, somebody like that. No, Chevron's less refining oriented, but an Exxon has already kind of warned uh, Shell's exposed. And then, as you know, the independent refiners, Valero, Marathon, going to be tough. Yeah, I'm on them, the up, I'm in on the upstream side. The names you uh, do like. Uh, well, I think the wild card I would throw in there is Apache, just as one I barely ever recommended. But but here I think it's 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 going to probably have a pretty good uh, pretty good run here once we turn oil, which is you know the key. Oil equities, that is. Love it. Hey, Paul, s- s- safe travels uh, wherever in the world that you may be. Hopefully, global air demand will come back at some point. Sure that it will. Paul Sankey is Sankey Research, like APA, Devon, EOG, and PXD Pioneer. Uh, so, yeah, Guy, come back to you. Um, you talked about Phillips 66. Again, it does. I mean, I, I like talking fundamentals and OPEC and, and, and the interplay between the parties. But he makes a darn good point. I almost said something else about rates in the dollar. I mean, if you're going to trade macro commodities, you better know <laughs> currencies and rates, right? And that's how you led the conversation. You were correct to do so without question. I mean, I think the most important chart, Tim probably would agree, I'm sure Nadine and Dan as well, the most important chart out there that we sort of rarely look at is the U.S. dollar. You know, I make the joke about the wrecking ball and Katy Perry and all those things, but it is true. I mean, the dollar really <laughs> controls everything and interest rates on the back of that. But I do think equities have led. I think if you're looking for a trade, PSX against that April 1st low, which I believe was 75, is an interesting trade ahead of earnings, I believe, on August 3rd. Are you saying PSX, people could soon hear it roar? Is it the Katy Perry trade? (laughs) That's very good, by the way, for you. (laughs) I I, I had to do it. You know, in the music for Dan and Tim, I don't know if I've got all the Pearl Jam references or Foo Fighters for Dan, but we'll get to them. All right, good discussion there on commodities, on oil, certainly a story to watch. And a big call by Jim Cramer, by the way. All right, coming up, we're going to change gears. A semiconductor smackdown. The chips, they crumbled today. We're going to break down what is behind their big drop. But first, big news on Biogen and its new Alzheimer's treatment. The headline is that Biogen tumbling more than 6% today. And what our traders say, you may or may not want to do with it. Stick around. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Well, Biogen was one of the biggest movers in the market today, particularly among the big cap stocks, down nearly 7%. That after two major hospital operators, both Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai, said they will not administer Biogen's new Alzheimer's treatment. Just last month, the FDA approved the drug based off two large but somewhat inconclusive studies of its effect in slowing cognitive decline in people that have mild Alzheimer's symptoms. Nadine, the stock, of course, getting a huge lift when that Alzheimer's treatment was announced. Now you got two leading hospital networks. They're not just, by the way, individual hospitals. They are networks that hold a lot of pull with what other hospitals do, uh, saying they're not going to do it. Any action here on Biogen? You know, my colleague was saying this is a lot like Olympian whose results get questioned because of doping, right? And so this is one of those types of things that the headlines could be sieging this company for a while, so we don't trade it. I think Guy called it weeks ago. You buy Lilly. I think that he had a great call on that. Um, they've obviously done a lot in the Alzheimer's space, and so I actually would own that stock and be a little bit careful about Biogen here. If you have to trade it, our low end of our trading range is about 323. Yeah, Guy, I mean, uh, obviously she's giving you a shout out on the Lilly side as well. You got, the, you got a, still an opinion on that, and also Biogen? No, I appreciate Nadine remembering that. And we did talk about it that night. And I think we all said when Biogen was trading north of 410, this was the opportunity to take profits in the name. It was the news you've been waiting for, and you got it and look for a pullback. And we actually said you buy it with both hands at 330. And quite frankly, that proved to be pretty prescient as the stock traded 370. But today, what do you do now? Well, you're right about the two hospitals. Obviously, the UNH commentary didn't help either. What I will say is Biogen Management sort of addressed it. I think you're going to hear more from them. They said, look, these are the growing pains or hurdles. I'm paraphrasing now with one of these first-gen drugs. I think they understand that this was probably somewhat inevitable. I do think this is more than just an Alzheimer drug company. I think the guys and gals would agree with that. And into earnings, I believe on the 22nd, I mean, this feels like another one of those capitulatory bottoms. This is not... For the faint of heart, we've pointed that out a number of times, but I think it's really interesting play here in the mid-320s. Okay, and I'm going to do a quick audible here, Dan. I'm going to come to you. I'm not going to put you on the spot on Moderna as a stock, but I want to ask you a more basic question. Headlines just crossing. Moderna, the vaccine maker, obviously, is going to be added to the S&P 500. It will replace Alexion Pharma. You don't have to comment on either of those names, Dan, unless you want to, but are there trades here just based on when companies get added? to major indexes as a whole? Well, I'll tell you this, Sully. We were talking about it earlier on the call. I mean, Moderna's been up 10% in two days. It sounds like some fund managers got the early call on that one. There's also been a lot of good news about mm. the potential for them to use the mRNA um, technology um, for other uh, pretty pretty disastrous diseases. And I got to give Guy Adami another shout out. He doesn't give himself shout out, Sully, but we're going to give him one. Um, I mean, listen, he's been calling for this to buy on every pullback. You had to break out. I think it was at 180. Um, and here we are here. The stock's at, you know, 280 in the aftermarket. Um, so good, good, good on you. I wouldn't be buying it here. I know fund managers have to buy it here, but I think you wait for a pullback, maybe back towards 200. But I don't know if it's getting back there anytime soon. Yeah, look at yeah, looking at the chart, not only intraday or right now, I should say, after hours, but to your point, Dan, 
Nice little run up into the <clears throat> surprise announcement about the addition yeah. to the S&P 500. Hey, maybe maybe computers just know, know everything. And, and we, by the way, with the Yankees getting uh, canceled or postponed tonight, we got to give Guy as many shouts out as possible. Now, what, what, what is he going to be doing? on? He's going to be at Morristown, New Jersey, restaurants uh, sipping a Chianti. All right. We have got a lot of show left. Here's what's coming up next on Fast. Chip stocks getting fried today. So do any of the semi-stocks have more room to charge? The traders are plugging into the semi-space next. Plus, Netflix and game? The streaming giant making a big move into the gaming space in hopes of leveling up. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome or welcome back to Fast Money. We had pretty much a semiconductor smackdown today led by that stock right there, and that is Taiwan Semi, down 5.5% after its latest earnings report. Now, that fallout from TSM did spread to the rest of the chip space as well. The SMH Semi ETF fell more than 3% today, even as Apple, obviously a big consumer of chips, Rose to an all-time high. By the way, the SMH is 15% Taiwan Semi, Dan. So, you know, as that stock goes, the SMH is going to move. What else do you make of some of these moves? Yeah, I, I just think it's about the setup. I know Tim has noted on many occasions the relative underperformance of semis um, over the last few months relative to the NASDAQ. Um, and you just mentioned Taiwan Semi. It's the big kahuna. It's the biggest in the um, in the socks here. Um, listen, you know, the sales outlook was good. We know that there are supply constraints right now. I think investors were concerned about their margins. But I think the most important takeaway to me, and just so you know, this was my final trade a few days ago um, on the show here. I like the breakout of the downtrend that's been in. Now it's back in that downtrend. I still like it here. I think the fact that they said, yes, some of these shortages will continue you know, into 2022, but some of the auto um, shortages are likely to abate at some point over the next quarter or so. That's why I think you want to buy this stock in the high teens here, because I think you probably see a Q4 run up back to those prior highs near 140. Yeah, Tim, how do we frame it? Because when I hear shortages, I think pricing power. But at the same time, if you don't have product to sell, you have no power. So how do we how do we frame it? Well, I think also for Taiwan Semi, like they, they've been in a sweet spot where also as Intel's been floundering in foundry um, and, and other spots, uh, you know, Taiwan Semi has been the go to and the stock has priced in a lot of re-rating. Let's be clear. I, I think this is as much of uh, we, we we all point out the importance of the semis and the leadership. I, I, again, I, I think the market moves on, on on the semis overall, even though, yes, they have underperformed of late. They've outperformed the, the triple Qs, the SMH or semiconductors over NASDAQ. 
Nasdaq 100 by by 22 percent in the last 12 calendar months. So I think, you know, the, the, the argument really is, yes, that, that supply disruption, uh, supply chain is not an indictment on overall demand. It's, it's a question of, though, I mean, look what's going on with NVIDIA. Look at just, you know, I think these are single names um, that, frankly, got very, very crowded. I don't think it's necessarily indictment on, on the fundamentals in the space. But yet you've seen investors kind of roll down the curve uh, of quality or at least in terms of uh, specialization into commoditized chips. And that may be the trade here. Um, but again, you have to watch the semis if you want to have the overall direction of this market right now. And I think uh, it, you know, today's move is something you have to take notice of. Also, this stock is 6% of, of the, the largest position in the Emerging Markets Index. I mean, it's such an important stock globally that this kind of a move, you should be paying attention. But I think a lot yeah. of it's valuation. Yeah, and, and great point about how much they matter to so many other things, Tim, not just semiconductors. They're huge chunks of ETFs that you may not even realize you own these semiconductors. All right, let's move on. Uh, one trader in the options market is making a huge bet that there could be a lot more carnage ahead for one name in this group. Let's find out who and why. Mike Coe joining us with the options action. What's the bet, Mike? Hey, Brian. So actually, we saw a lot of bets in a lot of these names on the volatility we saw today. But the one we're going to highlight is in Micron Technologies, which saw about 1.7 times of its average daily put volume trading. And a lot of that excess volume was the result of a single trade. Somebody was rolling out the July 75 puts out to the September 75 puts. They bought over 12,000 of those. They spent $3.42, blowing out the July 75s that they had for about 13 cents. So this was an outlay of close to 4 million bucks in premium. This could, of course, be basically stretching a hedge on a long position. But obviously, when you see this kind of volatility, sometimes you see a follow through in the options market. And that's what we were seeing here. Mm. Mike Coe with the options trade there. Big bet. Nadine, your thoughts. Semiconductors, Micron, what have you? You know, when you look at the results, 50 basis points of their 240 basis points of Taiwan Semi was due to FX. So I would kind of wipe that off. That's not a fundamental problem. Um, so I, I'm more with Dan here as I think of this as a time to, to re-enter. Um, I actually like the SMH a little bit better than the single stock. Um, I'm looking at a six and a half to one upside to downside right now. Uh, it's got a 15% implied volatility premium, which means that people are paying for protection and a big short interest. So if you believe that there's a need for semis, and I think that we all could agree that there is, um, I view this as a little bit more, again, there's just like oil, um, you see things that have run up, they consolidate a little bit, and this is when you can re-enter. Obviously, you can pick your names, but you can also go to an ETF like SMH. Yeah, but I will say that t- Taiwan's, Mike, quick comment for you. Taiwan, Semi, and NVIDIA, two stocks we just talked about, are 25% of the SMH. I mean, if, if those stocks don't perform, it's going to be tough to see how the overall ETF does. All right, Mike That's left. true. He's, At the same time, I would say prepping, that you can get that upside. I think bailed. They've got an eight and a half. Yeah, Nadine, I would say Mike just he's so eager for options action, he's already started prepping. Uh, are you worried about that concentration <laughs> on that ETF, Nadine? Sorry, no. You know, I even look at on Taiwan Semi, we've got about eight and a half to, to one upside to downside. So it might have broken some short term trends, but intermediate term trends are still there. Sorry about that, but, but that's what we see. So I think the individuals can work, but you can also just get a basket. Got it. Good stuff, Nadine. Thank you. And Mike, if you're out there, thank you. And we're already sitting in front of a camera somewhere waiting for tomorrow because options action 
is in 24 hours. Mike's already ready to go. 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Check it out, obviously, after the 30-minute Fast Money at 5 p.m. All right, coming up, forget Netflix and chill. Maybe it's time to Netflix and game. Streaming giant may be making a big move toward making gaming a reality. Julia Borston up with that next. Plus, happy birthday, Twitter. Well, they can cry if they want to. Some investors are because Twitter stock fell 3% today. We'll tell you why. Wiped out a billion and a half in market cap. Stick around. Fast Money's back in two. All right, welcome back. Some big news on Netflix and making a big move into the gaming space and a major announcement for the company today. Let's get now to Julia Borston, who's got all the details of, of the gaming world Netflix wants to inhabit, Julia. Well, Brian, Netflix is showing its commitment to expanding into gaming with a big hire into a new position it's just created, VP of Game Development. This is industry veteran Mike Verdu. He was previously VP of Content for Facebook Reality Labs, where he oversaw Oculus Studios. And before that, he worked at Electronic Arts and at Zanga, among other game giants. Now, Netflix has pointed to gaming as well as hit game Fortnite in particular as key competition for their streaming business. Now, it has experimented with interactive shows such as Bandersnatch, and it has partnered with outside game developers for Stranger Things games. Now, Netflix could produce its own game titles or even offer a streaming game bundle like Apple's subscription, Apple Arcade, which could be included to bolster the value of its core subscription or for a higher cost tier. Um, they could use that to boost the price. Um, but Netflix shares did fall about 1% today. Bernstein with an outperform rating notes that video games could enhance Netflix's value, but warns that this could signal weak earnings reports and that management could see its core business reaching saturation. Now, Netflix does report after the bell on Tuesday. So we'll have to watch and see if this was a sort of a reading of the tea leaves here that they need other ways to expand, Brian. Just a quick follow-up, Julian. If you said it, I apologize. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Do we know how much it might cost? Is it going to be included in the whatever eighteen ninety-nine a month? Is it going to be an extra fee? What? What do we Brian, know about Brian, we are so far at, before that. There's so much needs to be figured out before Netflix would would get there. So we don't even know if they're going to be offering a streaming su- su- subscription service. Now that is sort of the assumption, just because Netflix does streaming, they could add games. Um, and there's that question, though. You know, remember that Netflix does have three different tiers of service. You could pay more if you want to watch in HD or want more access to more streams. Um, the very basic tier costs less. So the question is whether maybe they include it in an upper tier or whether they could, you know, add a separate tier to add on games or whether this is just part of the core Netflix service. But, Brian, this is so far uh, away from us actually having an answer to that question. Yeah. I think Netflix doesn't yet know the answer to that question. But it seems, yeah, Julia, big story. And it seems kind of, I mean, nobody cares what I think, kind of genius in a way to get the younger folks. Julia Borston, thank you. I mean, Guy Adami, first off, comment on that. But you think about it this way, right? You got a teenage teenager who's playing, you know, I don't know, player Fortnite or player unknown battlegrounds. And there's a billboard in the game for the new season of Stranger Things. I mean, there's so many tie-ups that you can think of. It's kind of cool. I just don't know if it's going to matter for the stock. Lots unravel here. I mean, you asked that question of Julia for your predilection of, you know, gaming. I know that was somewhat, you know, you want to know because you want to know, Brian. Your love of Fortnite is, is profound. With that said, the naysayers will look guy? at this and say the, 
Are, are you? <laughs> well, the naysayers will yeah. say throwing around the lingo ahead of earnings. You know, this is ahead of earnings. There's clearly something amiss. Maybe you're not going to see the reacceleration of subscriber growth. I give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, they're getting to another vertical that makes a lot of sense. This stock has effectively traded sideways since this time last year, 480 to 550. I say the stock is building a base. The naysayers will say it's rolling over. We're going to find out on the 20th. I'm, I'm predisposed myself to think this takes the next leg higher. All right. And Nadine, Guy thrown out predilection, a bias in favor of something. Do you have a bias in favor of Netflix either way? <laughs> I'm a little bit worried that this is going to be more like maintenance CapEx to get people to stop switching, right? Um, so is this an offensive move or a defensive move? I don't think any of us have enough details to know. But like Colin Reed today to find out a little bit more. Um, so the stock has a good setup. Um, so it's bullish short term and intermediate term. It has big premiums, so people are paying for protection. Um, but it's kind of a fair fight in my trading range. So I would hold off. I don't like it when people announce something that's supposedly big like this right before their earnings. So um, maybe I'd wait to trade it if I really wanted to own Netflix. But it does give me some concern that this is just maintenance capex and hiding. Oh, yeah, not, not a ringing exorcement there. And I, I like your point here. Yeah, we're going to get into uh, gaming. That's it, gaming. Nadine, thank you. Guy, thank you. All right, coming up. A Twitter takedown. The social stock sinking today, even on its 15th birthday. By the way, happy birthday, Twitter. We're digging into what's behind the move and get a trade on the Twitter. Next. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Maybe a not-so-happy birthday for Twitter. The company falling more than 3% after pulling the plug on its competitor to Facebook stories called Fleets. If you don't know what Fleets are, don't worry, you're clearly not alone. The news coming on the 15th anniversary of Twitter launching to the public. Happy birthday, I guess. Twitter shares still up more than 26%, though, uh, on the year, Dan Nathan. So don't want to make too much of this move. I don't know if anybody cared about fleets. Certainly the company didn't. They just dumped it. They had a predilection to dumping fleets, as we say. Uh, any take on TWTR? Yeah, I think, you know, the company is developing products at a speed which a lot of investors for years and years wish they were, and, and, and they're doing it. And the fact that they dumped one that people didn't like and didn't use makes sense. You know why, Brian? They're making space on your scarce screen for something that I think is going to work very well that they just introduced, which is their Twitter spaces, right? So they're moving very fast, um, and I think they're really listening to um, users right here, and that's going to be a good thing for them to better monetize those users. So to me, I think the stock's had a big run. I think it got hit last quarter after earnings, got down to 50 bucks, got up here to 70. I suspect the thing comes in again yeah. um, before it, it, earnings. I, I just don't think you buy it for the earnings right here. Um, maybe there's a surprise on users. Maybe there's a size on ad, uh, surprise on ad growth. But um, the stock's had a big run in a short period of time. Yeah, and Tim, you can't kill them for killing fleets, right? I mean, you got to try things. They work, they don't. doesn't matter. Look, you know, that investor day of three months ago, maybe it's four months ago now, set, set the bar way too high for this company, for a company that really been waiting for innovation and engagement, but really more importantly, monetization for years. I actually think they've got the engagement. I think the ad acceleration is very impressive. And I think, you know, ultimately you have a case here where uh, DAU growth is good enough. 
Um, I like it in earnings, which are a week from today. I think uh, their guide on 2Q revenue, uh, anything north of, of, of a billion dollars, I think the stock's going to run. Uh, and I think people are looking at the top line, not just, you know, uh, DAUs. I think people are looking for these guys continue to grow uh, their revenue stream, and I think they are. DAU Daily Active Users watching Twitter stock down today as well. Tim, thank you very much, Dan. we got some breaking news meantime. Out of the West Coast and the largest county in America making another mask move. Kate Rooney, what do we know? That's right, Brian Sullivan. Good to see you. Los Angeles County will now require its residents to wear masks inside. This is after a rise in COVID-19 cases in the area. The county's health officer telling reporters that new protocols will go into effect Saturday night at 11.59 p.m. He says the requirements will be similar to what was in place prior to California's June 15th reopening. It comes just two weeks after the county recommended similar protocols, but they are now requiring masks indoors in L.A. County. Back to you. All right, Kate Rooney, I mean, thank you. Um, Listen, Guy, I'll go to you. Guy Dami, I'm not going to ask you to comment on masks or L.A. County or whatever. California does what California wants. They have the right to make their own rules. Talk to us more about the potential for a, uh, a reopening stall, an economic stall. By the way, the three Yank- the Yankee game postponed tonight. The three pitchers who tested positive for COVID, they were all vaccinated. Luckily, they're probably you know, going to be asymptomatic. But uh, there is still maybe a bigger reopening risk here than, than we're making, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, and, and none of us want to be alarmist by any stretch. But, you know, some of the headlines we're getting now are, are eerily reminiscent. And, again, I want to be careful here with the language is, you know, back when, you know, you were hosting the show and Melissa was on maternity leave, you know, we remember getting headlines like this and thinking, what does it mean? Well, we're starting to get them again. And, you know, maybe it, it augurs well for Jim Cramer's call and then obviously Dan's call over the last couple of weeks in terms of the slowdown. Um, Maybe it means rates continue to go lower. You have to take all these things into consideration. Obviously, one-offs notwithstanding, I mean, when you start adding these things up, the Olympics, all these different things um, are starting to be a little worrisome through the lens of investing and trading. Yeah. And those, listen, I, we could talk someday offline about those March days of last year when it was like all of us together, then one of us, then none of us, then nobody at all. That was weird. But thank God for the vaccines. Highly effective against the Delta variant as well. We got to remember that. All right, coming up, the big money and the big weekend ahead for one of America's fastest growing sports. Something cool and different. The head of the Premier League Lacrosse will join us next. All right, welcome back. A big weekend ahead and big money on the line for one of America's fastest growing sports. Let us bring in now Premier League lacrosse founder and professional lacrosse's all-time scoring leader, Paul Rabel. Paul, it's good to have you back on. Just one quick, I don't know anything about lacrosse. I know Dan does. I'll let him jump in here. Tell us about that. how fast is this sport growing? And by the way, you're a partner with NBC Sports. We appreciate how many people are watching this on TV. Well, we actually set our top two uh, ratings days over the past two weeks, one on NBC and then last weekend in Minnesota on NBC Sports of our three-year deal. So... Viewership is trending upward related to the sport. I mean, it's been around for centuries. It's a Native American game. 
Uh, we do our best to honor those roots, and it's been popularized at the college level and even internationally with full membership recognition at the Olympic level just last month. So we're hoping to see it in LA 2028. But two and a half million participants in the U.S., 10 million fans, and we're leveraging partnerships like the one you mentioned with NBC and those with the likes of Ticketmaster, Public.com, Hex, CrowdStrike to continue to grow it. Hey, Paul, uh, listen. Congrats, man. At 35, you're having a heck of a season. Um, the league is having a heck of a season. So congrats on that. So you just mentioned these partnerships. Brian mentioned NBC all weekend long. I can watch you on NBC proper, NBCSN. I can watch you on Peacock. It's amazing. But you have these deals. You just launched this public deal. Talk to our audience. Why does the PLL need a, a, a trading app partner? It's pretty amazing. And you're really active on the app. And I get to see a lot of the things that you're investing in and why you're doing it. Yeah. And I, I love to be on this show as much as I can. I, I, I grew up kind of looking at the financial services model and investing and figuring out resourcing and building companies as a means to create a career outside of lacrosse. And it's intersected with building the PLL with my co-founder and older brother, Mike. But the public.com partnership that we just announced is another example of what we can bring to the table. It's unique to a lot of other leagues and that we're a true single entity model. So what we bring to the table is on-site activation, online through our social media strategy, on broadcast with NBC, and we activate using league IP, team IP, and access to our players. So we've really bundled the advertising model. If you look at pro sports, it's a combination of ticket sales, media, which is an advertising business, to merchandise uh, yeah. and sponsorship. So that's, uh, that's what we focus on. Paul, we really appreciate you coming on. I mean, uh, and appreciate the partnership with NBC, Peacock, and everything else. Look at the sales growth up 93.5%. Paul, appreciate it, buddy. Take care. And everybody, be sure to catch the Premier League Lacrosse All-Star Game this Saturday, July 18th, 7 p.m. Eastern, live on NBC Sports Network and streaming live on Peacock. There you go. See Blaze Riordan and Grant Amons, captains. All right, up next, your final trade. Time now for your final trade. Let's go around the horn. Unfortunately, we lost Tim. I mean, not permanently. He just his feed dropped. Let's start now with Nadine. Nadine, final trade. Brian, we would go into the XLK today. That's a tech ETF. It hit the low end of our trading range at 14,494. So it's good to go. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Sully, despite uh, today's drop in Taiwan Semiconductor, I think it's still in that uptrend that's been in place since May. I think the news gets better from here. I think they just lowered the bar, so I like TSN here. Good stuff. Outside of the Del Barton team, I'm now a Whip Snakes fan in the PLL, I've decided. Guy Adami, your final trade. I don't know what a yeoman is, Brian, but you did its work this week. Uh, Newmont Mining, NEM. All right, everybody, appreciate it. Thanks for taking it easy on me, and thanks for watching Fast Money Mad with Jim Begins. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.